This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. This is Global Tennessee. I'm Pat Ryan from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today, Global Tennessee will provide a special report, a recent presentation by Afshin Malavi, Senior Fellow, Foreign Policy Institute at Johns Hopkins University, School of Advanced International Studies, and co-director of the Emerge 85 Lab. Afshin Malavi stands at the intersection of the most vital issues shaping the future of our world today, the rise of emerging markets, Middle East political and economic turmoil, and U.S. foreign security and economic policy. From the halls of governments to corporate boardrooms and mainstream media, Malavi's distinguished global outlook helps business leaders of all kinds assess how key issues impacting our world will affect one's organization and industry. Ashton Malavi is a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE, the Foreign Policy Institute, where he writes broadly on emerging markets, particularly on themes related to the New Silk Road, South-South trade, global hub cities, new emerging market multinationals, global aviation, the geopolitics of energy, and the intersection of Middle East states and the global economy. Malavi was also a senior research fellow at the New America Foundation, a nonpartisan think tank, and a former director of the World Economic Roundtable, an ambitious effort to remap the global economy in the wake of the Great Recession. He is also the founder and editor of the New Silk Road Monitor, a site that examines the markets, societies, cultures, and politics of countries across Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and beyond, from Bollywood to bond markets. A former journalist with postings in Dubai, Riyadh, Jeddah, and Tehran, his dispatches from the Middle East and essays have been published in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, the Foreign Financial Times, Foreign Affairs, Newsweek, Business Week, the Journal of Commerce, National Geographic, and dozens of academic and specialty publications. He is also a contributing writer to the Washington Post Global Opinion section, and most recently to Newsweek Japan. He is a regular speaker at investment conferences, universities, think tanks, and the media, and has also served as an analyst at the International Finance Corporation, the private sector development arm of the World Bank, and is co-founder of Emerge 85 Lab, an initiative dedicated to exploring change in the emerging world and its global impact. You can get more information about Emerge 85 at the website, emerge85.io. Take a look. It's a very interesting and stimulating uh, place. Uh, Afshin's uh, presentation today at Belmont University was titled International Economic Outlook, but uh, it's uh, much more than that. He explored uh, global trends, provided uh, very insightful and uh, thoughtful perspectives on what's happening in the world today, and we think uh, you'll really enjoy this presentation. So uh, we're happy to bring you today in Global Tennessee's special report, Afshin Malavi, International Economic Outlook, and then some. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
thank you. It's great to be with you today. Let me make sure I'm, I'm mic'd up here. All right. Okay. Are we good? All right. So it's great to be with you today. Uh, um, I am. Uh, I had a great uh, welcome to Nashville uh, last night. Uh, after my flight was delayed uh, many times uh, in from from Washington, I landed and uh, and Patrick Ryan uh, from the Tennessee World Affairs Council, uh, you know, kindly took uh, pity on me and took me over to Printer's Alley to the Blues and Boogie Bar, uh, you know, after. Uh, after being delayed multiple times on my flight from Washington, D.C., it was, it was a great welcome, so thank you. Uh, thank you to Belmont University. Thank you, Jill. Thank you very much for this invitation. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you today. Uh, I was in Nashville last uh, more than a decade ago or so, so, um, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, it, 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 frankly, it feels a little bit like... Um, you know, uh, when I when I visit uh, Dubai, because uh, because you know you you go to Dubai and you haven't been if you haven't been there in a while and you see all these new buildings, um, that's what it felt like a little bit like uh, when I came back to to Nashville after a decade or so. But um, uh, what I'm going to be talking about is you know broadly I'm going to be asking this question: uh, Where are we going? Right? Um, and it's a question we're probably all asking ourselves in in one way, shape, or form. Uh, uh, we think about it in, in, you know, not only in our, you know, personal lives, we think about it in our business, we think about where our politics are going. Uh, but when, when I think about it, I think about, you know, change, right? Change is, is, you, is, is something that is enduring and we've, it's always been with us. But I think what's different today, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this as well, is the speed of change uh, um, that we're experiencing today. Um, you know, here's one little uh, anecdote for you. It took the telephone uh, 75 years to get 50 million users, right? Uh, Angry Birds did that in 35 days, right? Um, so, so you can see, you know, how, how, how fast things are going today. I mean, we are living in a world where, where every minute of every day, uh, you've got about 300 hours of uh, video uploaded onto YouTube. Every minute of every single day. You know, that's, that's certainly a lot of silly cat videos, but it's also, you know, some consequential stuff that, that can move markets, that can, you know, potentially, you know, challenge governments as well. Every minute of every day, you've got two million pieces of content put onto Facebook. Every minute of every single day. Uh, you know, and, and so we've never been connected like we are uh, today. So wherever we're going, uh, we're going there fast, and we're going there in ways that we're uh, unimaginably connected. Now, um, we all know, you know, Moore's Law, right? Gordon Moore, the founder of Intel, who in the mid-1960s said that computer processing power doubles roughly uh, every 18 months or so, every 18 months to two years, right? Uh, and, and that's why, you know, and he, and he proved to be prophetic, and that's why we're living today in the fourth, you know, on the cusp of the fourth industrial revolution, uh, you know, driven by automation, robotics, um, nanotechnology, uh, and, and, you know, and it's why we are living in this connected world that, that I just described and, and this world of, you know, we, we talk about uh, surveillance. Um, we're, we're, you know, going to be living in a sense surveillance society pretty soon because of all the billions of billions of sensors that, that are going to be in businesses and, and on our roads, right? Um, uh, but, you know, Moore's Law proved to be pretty prescient. But, but how many of you know, let's see here. Did I, uh, I might have done something here. Uh, okay. There we go. How many of you know Mike Tyson's law, right? <laughs> yeah, Mike Tyson, the, the great American uh, boxer and philosopher, uh, you know, who said, uh, 
you know, everyone has a plan, that is, until you get punched in the face. Um, so uh, so that's, that's Mike. T now, I think that the, the screen now is, is working this way, but that's fine. That's fine. You know, you can see the preview of what's, what's coming. But Mike Tyson's law, uh, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face, right? Um, because the punches are going to come, uh, and we don't know where they're going to come from, but they are going to come. We're living in a, in a world of uh, geopolitical risk. Uh, we're living in a world where, you know, you wake up one morning and, uh, and you have, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Theresa May, if you're, if you're looking at the United Kingdom, uh, you wake up one morning and you see several cabinet ministers resigning from Theresa May's cabinet, right? Uh, if I stood here three years ago uh, in 2015 and I spoke with all of you and I said to you that um, the, the businessman and television reality star Donald Trump is going to be the president of the United States, and I told you that the, the United Kingdom is going to be exiting its most important you know, trade union, uh, the, uh, the European Union. And I told you there would be massive refugee flows across Europe leading to populist nationalists uh, you know, uh, rising all across Europe. You would have said, I'm crazy, right? You know, none of those things would have happened. So those of us in the geopolitical risk business, uh, we've got to be humble uh, because we have been humbled. Uh, and, and so, and that's part of, part of what the, the Mike Tyson's law, that's where Mike Tyson's law comes in. Um, so as I said, living in a world of geopolitical risk, and, and what I want to do a little bit later is put some geopolitical risks on the table, and, and I want to, you know, ha have you guys uh, talk about some of them, and, and, you know, amongst yourselves, and, and I'd love to just kind of survey the room uh, of, of which of these geopolitical risks keep you up at night. Which of these geopolitical risks uh, do you think are going to be affecting your bottom lines, affecting your future? Um, we live in a world of technology disruption, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Uber, you know, it feels like it's just part of our daily lives. It's not, not even uh, 10 years old, right? Uh, and and it's, uh, in San Francisco alone, 20% of all miles driven uh, are through ride-sharing services, you know, uh, either Uber or Lyft. And it's not just in the United States. Uh, uh, in India, you've got uh, Uber and its main competitor, an Indian company called Ola. Uh, in China, uh, you've got a company called Didi Chuxing, uh, which has been uh, going head-to-head -head with Uber and actually managed to you know, defeat Uber. Um, and that was one where, where it was innovation rather than uh, closing off the market that helped uh, Didi Chuxing uh, beat Uber. It wasn't the usual playbook of closing off the market to the to the American competitor, but we're living in a world of technology disruption. You know, markets, you know, go up, markets go down. It may not feel that way. We've been on a, uh, you know, a nine-year uh, expansion. Uh, climate change. So these are all these are all things that are you know happening. Um, we live in in a time of social storms. Uh, there are 2.2 billion users on Facebook. 2.2 billion users on Facebook. I mean, if Facebook were a country, it'd be the largest country in the world. Um, you know, Facebookistan, you can call it. Um, so you've got, uh, 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 you know, we're, we're living in this, this time of, of, you know, consequential and rapid and dizzying change. So, so in this time of consequential and rapid and dizzying change, what I try to do is, is anchor myself on some enduring trends, some trends that are not going to be whipsawed by the latest geopolitical headlines. Um, and, and these are trends that I've come up with, five key trends that, that it doesn't matter who sits in the White House, it doesn't matter who sits in the Elysee Palace, it doesn't matter whether there's a, a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit, it doesn't matter whether, uh, you know, 
it, what Italy does with the European Union over in, in its fight over the budget deficit today. Um, none of that matters because these, these trends lines are pretty secure in where they're going. So let me go through each of them. Uh, 85%, uh, $129 million per year, uh, $1.5 million per week, $5 billion and under 30. Let's start with the 85%. 85% of the world currently lives outside of Northern America and Europe. 85% of the world. So that's not a forecast going out to the year 2030 or 2040. That's today. Today, 85% of the world lives in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. So we in the West are not only a demographic minority, but we're a demographic minority by far. Uh, and I, I launched an initiative over at Johns Hopkins Sice uh, called the Emerge 85 Lab, you know, playing on this 85 number, uh, looking at the emerging markets. And I was joking with my, uh, my partner that if we manage to survive, uh, you know, another five to 10 years or so, I'm going to have to change the name to the Emerge 86 Lab or the Emerge 87 Lab uh, because that's where the growth is, the population growth is, uh, is in these emerging markets, uh, whereas in, you know, uh, Europe is shrinking. Uh, Northern America is growing much slower than the populations in Asia and Africa, for example. Uh, so three out of four people currently live in Africa or Asia. Currently. Again, we're not going out to the year 2030 or 2040. That's today. Three out of four people in the world live in Asia or Africa. The biggest population growth uh, in the world is, is, is in Africa, right? So we've got 1.2 billion people in Africa today headed for 2.4 billion by the year 2050. So we're talking about a doubling of the population, a doubling of the population by the year 2050. Now, you know, no matter where you stand on the Africa is rising nar narrative, because, you know, there, is, there certainly is more commercial dynamism, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa than we sometimes see. No matter where you stand on that, they're not going to be able to create enough jobs for that level of population growth. Uh, and that's going to have implications uh, all across uh, uh, the world. Uh, because, you know, what happens over there doesn't just stay over there, right? Uh, we do see effects uh, across the world. Asia, by the year 2030, there will be nearly 6 out of 10 uh, people will be living in Asia by the year 2030. Um, and in China, you know, we're looking at 400 million cars. Uh, Two-thirds of emerging markets travel Will, uh, two-thirds of global travel will come from the emerging markets, mostly Asia. Um, by 2030, we're not sure whether those cars will be electric or will they, will they be, you know, uh, the, the traditional internal combustion engine car. But, but um, you know, it is uh, uh, 400 million cars. Uh, that's a, a quite a significant uh, rise uh, in China. Now, um, so that was, you know, so the 85 percent, keep that in mind, uh, now, the headline number two was the, the 129 million figure. So today is November 16, 2018. Uh, today, there will be 353,424 children born, right? Um, now, I don't know that for sure, and we're not you know, sure it's going to be exactly that number. Um, but, but if you take the 129 million births per year, you come up with 353,424 children. Um, in the two hours that we spend together, uh, uh, there will be roughly 30,000 children born, right? Um, and, in, and in the minute it took me to tell you that, there were 240 children just born, right? 
Um, now, where are they being born? They're being born in the 85 world. They're being born in Asia and Africa predominantly. Also Latin America and the Middle East, but predominantly Asia and Africa where the, the population growth is, is, is the most significant. Uh, and, and so we're talking about 129 million new births every year. You know, that is uh, an Egypt and a half. Uh, that is a, uh, a, a Germany and a half uh, every single year. So the demographic domination of Asia and Africa is a, is a fixture of our global world today. Uh, and that's not going to uh, change. As I said, it's not going to change, you know, whether we have a, no matter who won the midterms, no matter who's going to win, you know, the presidential election in 2020, that's a feature of our global life. Um, the world population in 2030, headed for Africa, will add another 500 million people. Asia is going to add another 600 million people. Uh, Northern America uh, will add 60 million people, and Europe is, is shrinking. Uh, you know, again, broad trend lines, things can happen, things can shift, things can change, but these are the, the broad trend lines. Uh, United Nations projections out to the year 2050 uh, has a world population of 9.8 billion with uh, uh, India, China, and Nigeria overtaking the United States as the third most populous country in the world uh, by the year uh, 2050. Uh, and at the same time, global life expectancy gaps are going to be diminishing. Uh, so uh, you know, this is where we're headed. And again, these population trends uh, you know, seem pretty fixed. Um, so 129 million new births every year. So this is, if you're keeping count, that was the trend number two, 129 million uh, births uh, every year. So no, let's go to number three. Um, trend number three, 1.5 million per week. Uh, what do I mean by that? That's the number of new urban dwellers uh, every single week, new urban dwellers every single week. If you count the rural to urban migration uh, and you count the births, you're talking about 1.5 million new urban dwellers every single week. Uh, so if you're looking for something new in history, this is it, right? Our urban world. We are 54% urban today, you know, headed for two-thirds urban by 2050. Uh, you know, in the year 1800, the world was 3% urban. In the early 1900s, the world was about 15% urban, right? Uh, this is something new in human history, right here. The urbanization. China in 2012 surpassed the 50% urbanization mark. Uh, they're never going to look back. No, they're not going to look back. India's still got a way to go. Uh, India's still uh, majority rural. Uh, but this, this level of urbanization has tremendous implications, which we're going we're gonna to get into. Um, so 1.5 million per week, new urban dwellers. Now, cities are economic engines, right? All you have to do, I was with the dean just looking at the skyline of Nashville. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, you can just see that, that Nashville is an economic engine of Tennessee, Right, just looking at the numbers, it looks to me. Correct me if I'm wrong. That Nashville, you know, accounts for you know more than half of Tennessee's GDP. Right. So cities are uh, the economic engines. Right. There was a study done by McKinsey that showed that 600 cities account for two thirds of global GDP. 600 cities account for two thirds of global GDP. Uh, you know, and, and again, just just I just looked at the numbers on on uh, on Nashville's uh, GDP. 
uh, and, and if you just take a look, just, if you just take Nashville, um, uh, Nashville has a GDP larger than the GDP of Kuwait, larger than the GDP of Angola, larger than the GDP of Morocco, right? If you take Tennessee, uh, Tennessee has a GDP then larger than the GDP of Egypt or Vietnam or Portugal or Venezuela, right? So, um, you know, the, but, but it's driven by, driven by cities, right? Uh, I was talking to an emerging markets investor, uh, and I asked him about Indonesia. I asked him, what do you think about Indonesia? And his response was interesting. He said, you know, I don't know much about Indonesia, but I sure do like Jakarta, right? You know, uh, and the idea was that that's where, the, that's where the economic dynamism was, and that's where I want to invest. I want to invest in Jakarta, where Jakarta accounts for 25% of Indonesia's GDP, you know, what do you think of South Korea? Well, you, you know, the answer is, what do you think of Seoul, right? If you like Seoul, Seoul accounts for 50% of South Korea's GDP, right? So, so cities are, are vital, uh, and, and, and they are economic engines. And, and so, you know, in, in some ways, you know, we might start thinking um, in post-Westphalian terms. You know, the Treaty of Westphalia um, uh, in the mid-17th century, shortly after the Thirty Years' War, um, in many ways created the, the, the system of nation-states that we're living in today, the sovereign nation-state. And, and our entire kind of world system is structured around the nation-state, right? We have the United Nations, right? We have the, the Olympic Games where nations compete. Uh, you know, we, we, when, we, when, when uh, uh, companies like S&P and, and, and Dow Jones come up with indexes, it's often country index funds, right? Um, or regional indexes, uh, the World Bank, the IMF. Uh, everybody's, you know, w- works with nations, you know. Um, but, but, you know, cities, as I said, 600 cities account for two-thirds of global GDP. Uh, you know, you, when, you th- when you think about uh, Egypt, you need to be thinking about Cairo, right? Uh, and so, so maybe we ought to be, you know, thinking in a post-Westphalian terms when it comes to investing as well. Um, Asian cities. Uh, um, in 1900, only one of the world's largest cities was in Asia. Today, four of the top five and six of the top ten. Uh, and, and we're headed towards, you know, a, a world of, of mega cities, cities of more than 10 million people or more. Uh, we've got, you know, about 35 of those today, uh, cities of 10 million or more. Uh, and, you know, here's the top ten mega cities by size. What's interesting about this list is that... Uh, uh, not long ago, New York was in the top five, right? Uh, been, been, you know, surpassed uh, by, by these Asian cities, these fast-growing Asian cities. Um, Delhi, Shanghai, and Mumbai in particular have been uh, uh, moving uh, very fast past New York. Um, you know, here's the, the next ten of the big mega cities. You know, you can see um, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy on the Asia and heavy on the Africa with a couple of uh, Latin American, you know, in there as well. Um, so uh, the key trend number four um, is the five billion by the year 2030. What do I mean by that? Um, there are uh, currently about uh, three billion people in the global middle class. Uh, and, and, and I use the, the excellent work of my colleague at the Brookings Institution, Homi Haras, uh, for these numbers. Um, and he argues that by the year 2030, you know, what we're seeing is, is another 2 billion people entering the global middle class. And, and the vast majority of those new entrants in the middle class are going to be coming from Asia. The vast majority 
of those new middle class entrants are going to be coming uh, from Asia. Now, middle classes, of course, play a very prominent role in consumption and economic development, but also in politics as well, which we're going to see, uh, um, you know, play out uh, when I give you uh, a concrete example of this. But the Asian middle class by the year 2030 will account for two-thirds of the global middle class. Two-thirds of the global middle class. And 88% of the new global middle class entrants and 40% of global consumption. So $5 billion in the global middle class by the year 2030. By the way, we, we've, we, we are now more than half in, in the middle class in, around the world. More than half. Uh, and depending on how you define the middle class, Homi Haras takes a, a, a conservative definition of, of, uh, of income of between 10 to, you know, uh, spending power of between 10 to $100 per day. You know, that's a conservative definition. The World Bank was, you know, putting people in the middle class who were spending $2 a day at some point, right? So it's a conservative definition. Um, and he says that we're headed for $5 billion by the year 2030. Now, the implications of this, of course... If you, you know, if you are a consumer-facing multinational company and you see growing middle classes and you see rapidly urbanizing populations that are wired and connected in ways that they've never been wired and connected before, well, you're going to be chasing that growth. There's a reason that McDonald's is putting up almost one restaurant every single day in China over the next two or three years, almost one a day. Uh, there's a reason that Adidas is putting 3,000 new stores into China to add to their existing 9,000 stores, right? Because uh, they're chasing the Chinese middle class, right? Uh, and, and we're seeing this, you know, when you look at the annual reports of some of our largest companies and, and you see, you know, where, where they see their future growth, they all refer to future growth in the emerging markets, the future growth in in China, India, uh, uh, and, and other emerging markets. So $5 billion by the year 2030 is going to have enormous implications for trade, for logistics, for uh, telephone services, telecommunications services. I mean, there is an absolute telecommunications revolution that has been taking place all across uh, uh, the world. There's a great new book out, if you're, if you're interested, called India Connected, how the smartphone is transforming the world's largest democracy. Uh, and in that book, the, the author points out that uh, over the past year, uh, because of a, a company called Reliance uh, Industries, Reliance Industries, uh, a company that made most of its uh, money in you know, the, the oil and gas business, the oil refining business and petrochemicals, um, has gotten into the telecommunications business. And what they did was they started handing out free access to the internet and access to uh, um, uh, uh, enough uh, room to, to download uh, data. And that was always the, 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 the barrier, particularly for uh, um, you know, uh, Indians who didn't have, you know, were not in the middle class. And it, it basically created a revolution in internet access. And, and you can buy a decent smartphone in India for about $50, 50 to $100. Uh, and, and, and this service, Reliance Geo, um, led the, the, this one statistic that, that still blows my mind, that, that every second three Indians over the past year were experiencing the Internet for the first time, right? So massive, massive, uh, uh, you know, transformation uh, in India as a result of the rise of the Internet. 
So $5 billion by the year 2030. Um, there's going to be $56 trillion in consumer spending by the year 2030, driven by this global middle class. Driven by this global middle class. Uh, and so much of this is centered on Asia and the future of Asia, right? Asia is the world's largest importing region, you know, uh, imports more than the United States and the EU. Uh, and, and, you know, so much of our collective global future is going to, you know, depend on, uh, you know, the answer of, to the question of whither Asia, whither China, whither India. Um, so under 30, this is the fifth and final trend, uh, uh, the world is young. Uh, more than half of the world's population is under the age of 30. Uh, but this trend it has more nuance and more variation, right? So in a place like China, uh, China is not one of the younger uh, parts of the world. Uh, China, the median age is 35, right? Uh, the, across Southeast Asia, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the median age is 27. Uh, so, so China is, is uh, you know, as, as, as one economist said, is going gonna, is gonna to grow old before it gets rich, right? Uh, and so, 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 you know, this is a, it, it's, a, it's a country that has defied the laws of gravity for so long. I mean, you don't grow 10% a year for 30, you know, plus years, for, you know, forever, right? Um, and, and, you know, you, and it's also a lot easier to grow at 10% when you're a $2 trillion economy than when you're an $11 trillion economy, right? Um, so, so, you know, gravity is catching up uh, uh, to China. Um, and, you know, would love to hear, you know, some of your thoughts on that as well. But we'll, we'll get into that. But, but the world, you know, when you look at the Middle East, North Africa region, two-thirds of the population is under the age of 30 in the Middle East, North Africa region. Um, you look at sub-Saharan Africa, the median age is 19 in sub-Saharan Africa. The median age is 19. And you look at the, the median age in Europe, 41, right? It tells you a lot about the, the migration that we're seeing from sub-Saharan Africa to Europe. Because again, as I said, no matter where you stand on the commercial dynamism story in sub-Saharan Africa, the, the Africa rising narrative that we've, you know, We've been seeing a little bit here and there. They're not going to be able to create enough jobs for that uh, level of population growth. And we're going to see more migration. And by the way, this automation revolution that's taking place in manufacturing is happening at precisely the wrong time for sub-Saharan Africa and for other countries that have not yet gone to that first level of manufacturing, right? Uh, so, so, you know, under 30, that's, that's, that's an important one for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, young populations uh, who need access to education, uh, who uh, can occasionally get politically agitated, uh, um, and, uh, and we'll get into that in just a moment. Now, you take all of these five trends that I just described, and, and let's add some rocket fuel to these trends, right? Uh, and, and the rocket fuel is the smartphone, right? We, we started out in 2007 with zero of these things. You know, we're headed for six billion of them by the year 2021. Six billion smartphones by the year 2021, right? Three billion or so of them today. So we've gone from zero to six billion in less than a decade and a half, right? And th this smartphone in your pocket has the same computing capacity that, that NASA had to send a man to the moon, 
right? And now it's in pockets in Indonesia and Egypt and India and all over the world. Uh, and it's, it's transforming everything. It's transforming how we produce and how we consume and how we connect and how we live. And I think, you know, a lot of folks, you know, certainly here, you know, in the United States and in, uh, and in Europe are also questioning um, how it's transforming our children's brains as well. Uh, so, it, but it is transforming everything. And, you know, Tony Blair uh, once said that all the isms are now wasms, right? Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but I think there is an ism that is, that is uh, uh, universal, and that's this connectism, right? Everybody wants to be connected. Everybody is becoming connected. Um, it is something that is truly um, becoming universal. Uh, even the, the so-called bottom billion, uh, the, those that are you know, at the very bottom of the pyramid, even they are becoming much more connected than they've ever been. Uh, and this is, again, new in human history. We're also becoming physically connected. We talk a lot about... Uh, uh, we talk a lot about cyber connectivity, but what about physical connectivity? Um, air traffic growth all over the world, uh, all over the world. It is a, we're, we're seeing an air travel revolution. If, you know, 30 years ago, you could have been a member of the Indian middle class and never get on an airplane, right? It, wouldn't, it would have been, it would not have been abnormal, right? It would be very, it would be very strange if you were never to get on an airplane now. Um, with, with the rise of budget carriers, with the rise of, you know, cheap travel. I mean, if you're, you can be in Singapore and go to a vending machine and buy an AirAsia ticket, you know, and, and get on that budget carrier and go to Kuala Lumpur or go to somewhere else in, in Southeast Asia. So the budget travel revolution has, 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 has uh, uh, dramatically transformed, you know, our physical mobility uh, as well. Um, so... When you think about, you know, where, where we're headed, we, we should be thinking a little bit about China demand, right? In, in, the, in the current trade battle between the United States and China, you know, some of the things that, that uh, some of the charges that are leveled are, are, are true. You know, China does steal intellectual, you know, uh, copyright. You know, that, that is true. Um, they haven't opened their markets uh, in ways that they should have. That's true as well. Um, but what is also true is that the China demand engine has been vital to the global economy, right? Uh, and, and so we're in, this, we're in this odd situation where some of the things that need to be course corrected, uh, um, you know, may indeed be the case. But we have to be careful uh, because there are really four things that matter to the global economy. It's the U.S. economy, it's the Eurozone, it's oil prices, and it's China. And these are four systemic things that matter to the global economy. And, and if we suddenly see a hard landing in China, uh, we, we are going to see effects all across the world uh, with the hard landing in China. Because China, it, the China demand engine, China is the world's largest consumer of you name the commodity. You name the commodity, China is the world's largest consumer of it, Right? They're also the world's largest consumer of, of you know, everything from, from beer to movies to pork to eggs. You, know, you name the agricultural commodity, they're the world's largest consumer of it. Right? So uh, you know, Apple generates 25% of its global revenues from China. Right? So, so this is a, 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 the China demand engine is real and it's important. And as China 
transforms its economy from one driven by investment towards one more driven by consumption. Uh, the, you know, for so many years, the global economy was on all of our backs, the American consumer, right? Now the Chinese consumer is playing a role uh, and contributing to uh, the global economy. And, and so there is a, um, you know, a China speed. Uh, there's a China size. I mean, you know, just you take, you know, one state in China and you're, you're talking about, um, you, you know, the, it would be uh, the same size as, as uh, you know, a top 15 country in the world, right? You know, uh, China, uh, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole notion of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, um, with China's economic growth, they create a new South Africa every few months, right? So, um, you know, so the, the, the China size and the China speed uh, is, is a feature of our, of our global economy. And, and things will, you know, happen pretty fast. You just take any industry, take the tourism industry, right? The Chinese, within a short period of time, have become the world's largest tourism spenders. In a short period of time. Uh, and, and, and so there's a reason why, you know, when you go to a Marriott hotel or a Hilton hotel, you can pay with one of the Chinese uh, um, payment systems, whether it's uh, 10 cents WeChat payment system or whether it's Alibaba's Alipay payment system. Uh, so Alipay is the payment system for Alibaba, the big uh, Chinese e-commerce giant, right? Last year, Alipay did $1.7 trillion in payments. Trillion, you know. And this is what I mean when I say China size. Uh, $1.7 trillion in payments last year. Um, uh, Alibaba has something called Singles Day, which is their, you know, big sale. And, and it's kind of an, almost, they created this as almost an anti-Valentine's Day where you, you're, you know, you, you buy something for yourself, you know. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And, and, and it was clever. It was, it was clever marketing. And, and, and just a few days ago, they had their latest singles day, $30 billion in sales. One day. One day, $30 billion in sales. Uh, uh, you know, by comparison, Amazon Prime Day um, did about $2 billion in sales, right? So, so I mean, this is China size, you know, uh, and, and, and China speed. Uh, so this is something that... Uh, that you know, we have to take into account. Now, India is rising. Um, every, every month, a million Indians turn 18. Um, think about the, the, the challenge of that, employing uh, you know, uh, the, the number of Indians that are coming onto the market. Um, three, every three, second, three Indians experience the internet for the first time, and 70% of online sales are by smartphone. And by 2027, the population will overtake China and will also contain the world's largest middle class, right? Uh, it already has the world's largest film industry, right? Bollywood films, right? So, you know, there's good news in, in all of this as well. I mean, we're winning the war on poverty. Uh, when you look around the world, we've, we've lifted more people from poverty in the last 50 years than we have in the last 500 years, right? So, so there's a lot of very positive indicators here. Um, access to education for girls, uh, you know, unprecedented, you know, levels. We still have an enormous, you know, road ahead, a long way to go, tremendous challenges, but access to health care, uh, access to education. Uh, you know, in 1990, in South Asia, 50% of South Asia lived below the poverty line. Today, 
below 15%. You may have seen this one, the, the world as 100 people, and it's just, you, you, you may not be able to read all of these, but it basically um, uh, shows that uh, when you look at extreme poverty, vaccination, education, literacy, you know, the, the suffice it to say that the chart is moving up and to the right, right? You know, we're, 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 we're going in the right direction on the things that we need to be going in the right direction on, right? So what could go wrong, right? <laughs> you know, um, well, certainly a lot can go wrong, right? Because, you know, well, let's not forget Tyson's Law. Let's not forget that, you know, we still have, you know, tremendous uh, challenges, tremendous poverty, um, even challenges like air pollution. Millions are dying in South Asia simply because of breathing the air. Uh, and and, it, and it's, 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 it's an enormous challenge. Uh, and... And, and the jobs challenge, right, that we're facing around the world. Those young populations that I described that are urbanized and wired and connected, they're going to need jobs. And if you don't give them a job, they're going to migrate. And, and where are they going to migrate? They're going to migrate to the 15%, right? Uh, and predominantly, you know, they're going to try to migrate to Europe. Um, and that's going to royal European politics uh, likely for the next decade or so. Um, and so... We've been very uh, macro here, so let's, uh, let's, let's just go to a, a micro example uh, before, I, uh, um, before I turn it to all of you. Um, and let's go to this, this guy, um, Mohamed Bouazizi. Mohamed Bouazizi, a Tunisian fruit and vegetable vendor uh, who on December 17, 2010, uh, set up his fruit and vegetable stall, right? Uh, so Tunisia is one of those countries that had a growing middle class that was rapidly urbanizing, increasingly wired, increasingly connected, um, actually had, uh, um, you know, some of the best female labor force participation in the Arab world. Uh, and, uh, Mohamed Bouazizi, um, maybe, uh, he, I don't know if he, he read blogs or, or was on the internet, but, but there was an Egyptian blogger who once said, I, I wish I lived in macro world, right? Uh, he said, because everybody tells me the macro numbers look good, right? Um, but for me, I don't see that. I don't see that in my life, right? Um, and so Mohamed Bouazizi, you know, could have, you know, said the same thing because he was eking out a living from his fruit and vegetable stall. Um, and then one day a, a police officer took away his license, told him he can't work anymore, uh, and he showed up at the municipal building uh, a few hours later uh, and, you know, tried to get his license back, but he had neither bakhshish, which is Arabic for bribe, nor wasta, which is Arabic for connections, uh, and they booted him out of the municipal building. Uh, showed up a little bit later with a canister of gasoline, poured the gasoline on himself, and lit himself on fire, right? And now this was the act that led to the Tunisian uprising, which led to the Egyptian uprising, which led to the Yemeni uprising, which led to, you know, the uprising in Syria, which led to the uprising in Libya, you know. Uh, and, and so how, how did that happen, right? Some of it is those big trends that I described, right? Uh, so growing middle classes, rapidly urbanized, increasingly connected with smartphones. So what happened is after Mohamed Bouazizi did this, and by the way, when he did this, he didn't say, give me liberty or give me death. He said, how am I supposed to make a living? Uh, because for too many people who are living in the informal economy all across this 85 world that I described, that's their basic question. How am I supposed to make a living? 
And, and the, but the protesters who went out to protest what happened to Mohammed Bouazizi, they were throwing rocks with one, in one hand and they were using their smartphones in their other hand and they were, they were uh, filming their confrontations with police officers, right? And, in, and filming them, putting them on YouTube, putting them on Facebook, putting them on Twitter. And television producers for Al Jazeera were then picking up those feeds and putting it on air. Uh, and it was a, 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 a you know, it, you know we've, we've seen in many ways that movie before where rock-throwing protesters versus the authoritarian state, and the authoritarian state wins, right? This time, the authoritarian state didn't win. This time, the Tunisian you know, president for life, Zina Abedin Ben Ali, stepped down. Uh, and, and, and part of it had to do with this, uh, uh, the, the, the pressure mounting as a result of you know, the television showing the protest. Part of it had to do with the growing middle class who, who were getting frustrated with the corruption of his rule. And, and one of the reasons why they knew about some of the corruption of his rule in detail is because of the U.S. ambassador to Tunisia. And why? Because the U.S. ambassador to Tunisia was doing his job. He was writing uh, cables back to the State Department. And in those cables, he was talking about the corruption of the ruling elite. He even described in detail some of the parties he went to uh, of the son-in-law of the Tunisian president who had gold lions on his uh, lawn, ice cream imported from Saint-Tropez, you know, in the south of France. And, and, and then WikiLeaks happened, right? Remember that? Uh, the very first um, uh, uh, State Department cables that were leaked? Uh, well, a group of Tunisian civil society activists took those cables fr from the U.S. ambassador back to the State Department uh, and created a site called Tunis Leaks. Um, and it was all of those cables and all the most, you know, incendiary stuff, you know. So this was an example of those same trends I was talking about. Um, and, you know, middle classes have rising expectations. I mean, this is something that the Tocqueville talked about. Uh, and, 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 you know, he, he said that, you know, revolutions, when he was reflecting on the French Revolution, you know, he made a really important point. He said revolutions don't take place when people are at their most miserable. They often take place amidst rising expectations that are unmet. And all across this world that I just described, you've got middle classes with rising expectations and, and, and aspirations that are, that are going to be unmet. Uh, you're not going to be able to... Uh, uh, meet all of those uh, um, aspirations and expectations. And so, so let me go through very briefly um, some thoughts on, on some of the geopolitical risks we're seeing. Um, you know, obviously the trade wars, if, if, if this escalates, it, it could have uh, uh, a significant effect uh, on, on the global economy. It would have an effect here in the United States as well. Um, the rising populist nationalism is another one um, that I'm looking at, and that is, you know, to, to some extent being fed by the migration that we're seeing uh, from the Middle East, but increasingly the, the migration we're going to be seeing from Sub-Saharan Africa. We've had a series of elections in Europe, um, you know, where the established political parties have been challenged and have been defeated. Um, you know, uh, in, in France, you had a, a newcomer uh, to the scene, uh, um, uh, defeat both the established, you know, center-right and center-left parties. Uh, in Germany, you have a, uh, a, um, a, a nationalist uh, party that, that is often described as far-right. Um, Alternative for Deutschland, um, you know, now has uh, representation in 15 of 16 state parliaments, and now is 13% of the national parliament as well. Um, 
Italy uh, was very interesting election. You have both from the, the, the populist left and the populist right um, uh, winning uh, in that election. Uh, and, 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 and I think what we're seeing is the most powerful political party in our world today is the party of no, right? Um, which is, uh, no, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you elites are doing. Uh, and, and it's both on the left and the right, right? It's not, it's not, it's not just one, it's not uh, just the, the right, it's not uh, only the left, it's both. So I think that that's, you know, worth watching very closely. Um, we have uh, uh, the Iran sanctions, um, uh, which are going to, you know, continue to bite. Uh, and, and, you know, the, there's an attempt to get Iran to zero oil exports. Um, I'm not sure we're going to get there, but, but, but we, it already has, has, is hurting Iran. I mean, we're looking at Iran has lost about a million barrels of oil on export markets already because um, com countries, one thing to watch out for when you see this, countries will beat their chest and say, no, the United States can't sanction us for purchasing Iranian oil because that's extraterritorial. Um, and, and then the companies, the refineries that actually buy the oil say, well, you know, yeah, okay, fine. You, you can get up on stage and, and make a political point, but we have business in the United States and we have business globally. So if it means losing 300,000 barrels of Iranian oil, fine. You know, we don't want the U.S. Treasury breathing down our neck. You know, we don't want the U.S. Congress breathing down our neck. And so this is the pattern we saw in the Obama administration um, when, when they sanctioned companies for doing business with uh, uh, Iran. And this is the, the pattern we're going to see uh, with the Trump administration as well. I'm going to go through these really quickly because I want to have a conversation with all of you. The emerging uh, Xi Jinping doctrine. Uh, Xi, uh, President Xi, um, you know, President Deng Xiaoping once famously said that China should hide its strength and bide its time. President Xi is not hiding his strength and he's not biding his time. I mean, we're seeing much more aggressive uh, uh, posturing in the South China Sea. Uh, and, and I think, uh, um, you know, we, we're likely to continue to see that, you know, going forward. Um, you know, we, we've seen in Turkey a coup, a counter coup, we've seen terror attacks. And now um, President uh, Erdogan seems to be... Um, relishing almost this whole affair of the, the killing of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and and, and they're, they're giving kind of a drip-drip account of, of what happened, almost like uh, a Turkish soap opera. By the way, do, do you know the Turkish, if you know the phenomenon of Turkish soap operas, Turkish soap operas have become uh, popular not only all across the Middle East, but they've become popular in Latin America as well. Um, and, they're, and Erdogan is acting like this is a, his own personal soap opera and getting on a soapbox witness. This is a man who's actually jailed 150,000 people. Um, so Saudi Arabia, if you're looking for one Middle East country that has systemic effect on the global economy, it's Saudi Arabia. Because um, if we were to see si significant instability in Saudi Arabia, um, we, you know, that could have an effect on oil prices, right? Uh, you could have a, a Syrian civil war, which is an enormous humanitarian tragedy, without having much of an effect on the global economy, right? Uh, a, a serious instability in Saudi Arabia would, would have an effect on the global economy. Um, Vladimir Putin is going to continue uh, uh, to interfere in elections in Europe and the United States as well. Uh, and, and Putinism uh, is this kind of idea of Putinism uh, is, is on the rise, this challenge to Western liberal democracy. 
uh, look out for the refugee crisis to continue to play out. Um, uh, how do you like your Brexit, right? Um, uh, you know, watching the United Kingdom do what it's doing right now, I was telling uh, some folks earlier, is like watching a, a good friend make a poor life choice, you know. Um, I don't like to see it. Uh, I, do, I do feel like, uh, um, uh, you know, to have to renegotiate something like three or 400 treaties, uh, to, to have the, the entire talent of the United Kingdom's cabinet uh, focused almost solely on, on this exit. Uh, doesn't seem like the best use of their time. The fourth industrial revolution um, uh, is, uh, is, is, is coming, uh, and, and we don't know. I mean, we, all, we, all, we know that technology, uh, uh, you, you'll lose jobs, right? But we just don't know what jobs are going to be created. So we can't only say we're going to be losing jobs. We don't know what jobs are going to be created. Um, but, um, uh, but and, then, and then lastly, let's just go to the, to the you know, here in the United States, um, uh, this is the electoral map of 2016, the divided states of America. And this is a live shot of our political discourse, uh, you know, uh, today um, uh, and uh, on Facebook. And, and these are the 2018 midterm elections. Um, so, uh, and, 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 but let me just close with this final slide because I, I want to uh, remind all of us that, for, you know, for all of, for all of the you know, discussions we have about, you know, hand-wringing about where we're going as a country, it's still important to remember that the United States is still the economic colossus of the world, right? I mean, this is just a map of the United States, and this is, uh, you know, countries. Uh, and if you just put, like, the, the GDP of Indonesia, it's equivalent to the GDP of Florida, right? Um, you know, uh, the GDP of, you know, Canada is the GDP of Texas. You know, you just, you find your state or where, whatever state you're from. It's important to remember, if, you know, the Los Angeles, Long Beach, Anaheim economic corridor alone would be a G20 economy, right? Uh, you know, California, the state of California would be a G7 economy, right? Uh, so, so, uh, so, you know, the United States still, in my view, uh, I, I remain bullish on the United States because we still have the best, uh, you know, uh, legal institutions in the world, the best research universities in the world, the most dynamic private sector in the world. Um, so I, I, I'm not of the view that we're getting beaten, you know, uh, um, uh, around the world by, by others. And, I, and that's why I still remain bullish on, on the United States of America, despite the fact that I think there is, this, there is this whole world out there that's growing and it's dynamic and it's interesting and poses all sorts of challenges and promises. So here I want to, um, you know, open it up to your questions, comments, and, and, and vigorous objections welcome as well, please. please. Yes, sir. Sir. Yes, it is a burden when, when the country doesn't have, like to, to put it bl bluntly, its act together, right? Um, so when you, when you have a place like, uh, uh, you know, Nigeria uh, that, that isn't putting the right institutions in place, isn't creating enough economic opportunities for their population, uh, um, and, and, and you have that level of population growth, uh, you're not going to be able to create enough jobs. 
Uh, and, and then what's going to happen is you're going to have people migrate. Um, because there's, there's basically you know, three ways for, you know, to get a better life. If you live somewhere like that, you, you either you use some entrepreneurial flourish, you know, and you manage to, you know, uh, get lucky, you know, uh, you seek an education, um, and sometimes that works, but often it, it, it doesn't, uh, or you migrate, you know, uh, and, and, and oftentimes the ones who sought the education end up, you know, migrating as well. Um, so, so, um, and, and particularly at a time when, when you see how the rest of the world lives and you see that there are opportunities elsewhere, never underestimate the human will to seek a better life, right? Uh, and and so, so your point is well taken, sir, that, that you, know, you, you do have these you know, growing populations in places where they already have a hard time meeting the basic needs of their population whether it's in education, whether it's in basic sewage systems, whether it's basic health care, basic services. Uh, and and, and, and when, you, when you can't meet the needs of your population, you know, your population is going to um, uh, migrate. You know? they, they will migrate more than they will rebel. Right? We often think, oh, well, if you don't meet the needs of your population, there's going to be a rebellion. Right? You know, most people are not, you know, don't have the stomach for political revolution. Right, uh, you know, they, they they would rather migrate somewhere else. So yeah, it is a, it it is a problem. Now, the other thing, the other way to look at it is when countries do uh, leverage their resources well, when countries do uh, leverage their populations well, these kind of young populations can be a demographic gift. This is what we saw with East Asia. Uh, in the 1980s, you know, with, with the rise of several East Asian countries in the 1980s. It's what we saw with South Korea. It's what we saw with Japan, uh, um, where they used their young populations, and the young populations became a demographic gift, and they, they got a lot of productive, uh, they had a lot of productive capacity, and they used it. Uh, but that's not, you know, um, you have to have the right infrastructure in place to use that. So, so, so I think one of the fundamental questions of our time is, are we seeing demographic gifts or are we seeing demographic bombs? Right? It's a fundamental question of our time. Please, sir. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, yeah, you're, on, on China, what, the, it's, what's striking is if you, if you play it out to the year, you know, sort of 20, 2100, so to say, you know, and, and, and somewhere in the next few years, uh, Indi the India and China uh, lines are going to cross, and India is going to be the larger population, right? And then what's going to happen is India is going to keep ticking upward, uh, and China is going to go down. Uh, and it's going to go down again. These are UN population, you know, figures going. I mean, any, anytime you forecast out that far, there, there's always some some danger. But but we're looking at the year 2100. They're going to go go under a billion, right? Um, so we don't even have to go that far. Just if, just just go 10, 15 years from now. Um, uh, you know, one of the trends that we're seeing uh, in China is 
is uh, the growth of, of uh, industries um, uh, around healthcare and around aging, right? Uh, because you know China is headed towards Japan type demographics, uh, and is it headed for Japan type stagnation as well? Uh, and and you know how's the world going to handle that kind of you know uh, stagnation when when China has become this great uh, uh, demand engine? Um, so that's why this whole uh, Belt and Road Initiative seems uh, interesting to so many people because the. That, you know, you, you've, you've probably heard of this. You know, China has decided that they're going to spend, you know, up to a trillion dollars in infrastructure uh, investing around the world. It might be the, the most, I would argue, it's the most ambitious foreign policy agenda on the world stage today. Uh, and, and, it's, and, it, and it's bringing, you know, countries all across Eurasia, Africa, and Latin America into a China orbit. Um, uh, but part of the reason they have to do this is because they, they have excess capacity in steel, excess capacity in cement, and they really have to set themselves up uh, for a future in which they're not relying upon only China you know, to generate their growth. Um, they're going to need to rely on other countries around the world and, and investments in other countries around the world to generate uh, their growth. But watch the, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, space. Um, that's a very interesting one uh, to watch. But I think it's, China's headed towards Japan, right? Uh, and, 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 and in that respect, maybe China's a little less scary, right? Uh, maybe China's a little bit less scary if they're headed in that direction. Um, I think what, what, from my conversations with folks from the Trump administration and from folks who know uh, the thinking in the Trump administration, I think what, what, worries them the most about China is this Made in China 2025 initiative um, in which China is seeking to be the leader in several uh, uh, fourth industrial revolution industries, um, whether it's uh, electric cars, whether it's you know, nanotechnology, uh, robotics, artificial intelligence. China has a clear artificial intelligence strategy uh, that they have published online. Um, and when China pours state money, you know, into these industries, into these strategies, you know, they can, they can go a long way. They can go a long way. Um, so then the question, then I, I suppose when you step back and say, okay, okay, that may be a threat, right? But the question becomes, I don't know, are you going to bet on Silicon Valley or Chinese state-owned enterprises, you know, um, you know, and I, my bet is still on Silicon Valley winning that battle, right? Uh, but uh, but that, that's that's a real concern in in the Trump administration is this whole, you know, the, because China has moved beyond the low-cost manufacturing center. That's not the China story anymore, um, and what and, and and that's not the the China story that President Xi wants. He wants China to be the leader in artificial intelligence, the leader in robotics the leader in nano, the leader in all these, you know, future industries. Uh, and uh, so it's a kind of a, a, a bit of a tangent to what you were saying, but, um, but, uh, um, but and, and, you know, when they're setting themselves up for the future, they're thinking in those terms. Please, here, and then over here, please. Um, first, China doesn't fundamentally appreciate immigration. The yeah, legally, right, so right, gonna, yes. Yeah. Second, uh, humanity spent a very long time yeah. And we did. Yeah. And then 
smartphones. Yeah. And then ten years later, we're at right where we're at now. Yeah. Has anyone within your circle yeah. accounted for maybe the 2016, 2018, and those elections are mm -hmm. emotional reaction to the speed mm -hmm. and not being not the time being given for people to soak it in mm -hmm. and then change with it? Yeah. Because it. The way that I process information is different than the way someone 30 years older than me yeah. versus someone 15 years younger than me. Right. The, the, the difference between those three demographics is massive. Yeah. The way that you process information, the way you emotionally connect with people, right. and the way that you communicate those connections. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're onto something there. I, I think the speed of change is, is, can be very disorienting, right? Uh, and. And, 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 and it's, very, it's, it's very difficult to understand, you know, what's going on in the world. I mean, I spend most of my day trying to figure out what's going on in the world, and I, I, I often can't understand it, you know. So, so if, if, that's, if, if, you are, if you've lost your job uh, or, or if you, you know, um, uh, look, in, 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 this, in this day and age, if you don't if you have a college education and above, it's very difficult for you. I mean, those you know, quote unquote, you know, um, uh, medium skilled uh, jobs, uh, they're, they're hard to come by now. Um, now we're seeing more, more, more growth of them, but, but then you're looking for a reason why, right? Uh, and, and things have been changing so fast. And then you, you, you know, there's, uh, you know, but nostalgia always has rose tinted glasses as well, right? You know, um, you know, you know, maybe things were not as good as they as you think they were 20 years ago or 15 years ago, but but you 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 think back nostalgically to those days. So I think I think you're onto something that that speed and dizzying change and and di and, and kind of the sense of disorientation had an effect on you know elections across Europe had an effect on elections in the United States. But I think it's also a fact that we know a lot more about our um, politics and our politicians and. And, and, the, and we just don't like what we see. So I go back to the, the, the party of no, right? Um, a lot of people know what they don't want. They're not sure what they, what they actually do want, but they, they sure don't want that guy, you know, or they don't want that, that woman, or they don't want that, you know, they, they, this, is, this is what we're, they're, they're pretty sure of. Uh, and so I think, I think this is just the beginning, though. Uh, I think we're going to see more protest votes in Europe in particular. Uh, um, and uh, um, I, I certainly am not going to be predicting the 2020 election here in the United States. Uh, um, that would be a fool's game. It's it, it's it's way too early. Uh, but um, but I but I think you can you can see in Europe we're going to see more populist nationalists of the left and the right emerging uh, in Europe, um, in, reacting to to the changes that we're seeing in the world. And your point about immigration in China is a good one, just to add to the discussion of the gentleman's question. Uh, please, sir. Uh, Tom Friedman's last book, uh, thank, you. Yeah, thank you for being right. Yeah. You know, it deals with a lot of that. Yeah. But aren't we playing with fire a little bit with these mm -hmm. tariffs and, yeah. and China? It's, yeah. it's a subtle point, but it's a yeah. good one, I think. Uh, they've used the trade surplus they've had with the United States to buy U.S. government security. Yeah. Yeah. So they bought two to three trillion. Yeah. I've heard of yeah. debt yeah. Uh, from us. Now, this is the doomsday scenario. Yeah. But if they decided they've had enough of these tariffs and sanctions and tough yeah. talk, and mm -hmm. they decided to dump yeah. those government bonds that they hold, yeah. prices <coughs> down, rates go up. Right. They could put a big stall on the U.S. economy. Yeah. The 
excited. Do you ever, do you ever hear any worry about? I know that sure. would be good for them. Yeah, but yeah. At some point, yeah. You know, I could see she being a little bit like Ayatollah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, 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 that, it's a concern, and, and in fact, a couple, two, two three years, no, no, it was, it was a little bit longer, um, shortly after the, the financial crisis, um, uh, you did have Chinese officials kind of coming in and saying, you know, we're a little bit worried about America's budget deficits, America's economy, the sort of things that we do when we go around the world, you know, and, um, you know, and, and, you know, we'd really like you to get your, your act in order, you know, uh, because we, we've invested a lot in you. Uh, so you do, you do see that. And, but I think, we, you know, we're so intertwined uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, that, that, that uh, they wouldn't want to do that, uh, nor, nor um, I think that, I don't know, I'd love to get the sense of this room um, uh, about, about China um, but when you look at, um, there's, some American companies are souring on China. That's true. You're seeing that. You're seeing the, the, the surveys that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce does in China says that they're you know, souring. But there's still a lot of opportunities there. Um, a company like Yum Foods out of Kentucky, um, you know, uh, Pizza Hut and, and, uh, and KFC, um, they generate something like, something like I think, the, the 50% of their, you know, Global revenues from China alone. Um, uh, as I said, Apple, 25%. Boeing, airplanes. Uh, you know, Hollywood, um, you know, generates a lot of revenue, uh, you know, from, uh, from China. So we're still, um, we're still making money off of the Chinese middle class. And I think that's the piece of the story uh, that we're missing. It's the Chinese consumer. And there was a study that Euromonitor did recently and showed that, that by the year 2040, aggregate consumption in China could be equal to aggregate consumption in the United States, you know, you know, and so you know, not per capita, but aggregate consumption. And so the Chinese consumer is putting the global economy on its back. And so, so, you know, I guess to your point, you know, yeah, the tariffs, if it gets, if it gets serious and we do see a hard landing in China, you know, be careful what you wish for, right? Cause that, that's going to, for many emerging markets, China was like the speedboat and they were the water skiers. Uh, and, and, and the speedboat was going fast and, you know, you're, the water skier is going really well and suddenly the speedboat slows down and the water skiers get a little wobbly, right? Well, they get wobbly and that has rebounds effects across the world and then suddenly you don't see the, you know, the, the lifting, the poverty numbers that we saw. A lot of it is China, of course. They've lifted 700 million people from poverty over the last three decades. Like, you know, let, let's not forget this transformation that took place in China. Um, a great book by Evan Osnos, um, uh, called The Age of Ambition, uh, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. He points out that the, the transformation we've seen in China is at 100 times the scale and 10 times the speed of the Industrial Revolution that created modern England, right? I mean, this, this scale, this speed, again, we haven't seen anything like this in, in human history. Uh, and, and, and it has had you know, tremendous effects across the world. So here, here's maybe at, at, at this point, I, w- I want to... Um, maybe pull the room if you don't mind. Um, uh, um, I have. Uh, um, I'm going to l- list some uh, some geopolitical risks, top ten sort of geopolitical risks that I'm looking at, uh, and uh, and then and then I'm going to just. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to just name them. I'm going to go through each of them, right? Then um, when I come back to them, uh, raise your hand if that particular risk makes your top three of what keeps you up at night. Right. And then I'm going to count and, you know, and see, see where we are. Right. So uh, 
so so let's 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna just go start. Um, so U.S. Uh, so number one, um, and these are in no particular order of of ranking. Number one, the uh, U.S.-China trade war, and you you won't even need to write these down. Just like if if registered in your head, U.S.-China trade war escalates. Number two, the North Korea nuclear situation. Uh, number three, a no-deal Brexit. Uh, number four, instability in Saudi Arabia. Number five, populist nationalism in Europe. Number six, the Syrian civil war. Uh, number seven, hard economic landing in China. Number eight, South China Sea tensions. Uh, number nine, a continued Venezuela implosion. Uh, number 10, political polarization increasing here in the United States. So you've made a mental note in your head. So when I come back to each one of these, um, if they make your top three, you know, uh, raise your hand. I'm sorry? Yeah, you can have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can have five. You can have, uh, uh, if they make your top three or if uh, Pat or Pat's top five, you know, you can we can do it. Um, so U.S.-China trade war escalates. Does that. OK, so let's go. Uh, keep your hands up if you don't mind. I'm going to be counting here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Got it. OK. The North Korea nuclear situation. All right, here we go. One. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Got it. Okay. A no deal Brexit. Start over here. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Okay. This side of the room is more worried about a no deal Brexit than that side of the room, it seems. Yeah, right. All right. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, Saudi Arabia instability. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and then twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. Okay. The the rise of populist nationalism in Europe. Okay, I'll start over here this time. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Got that room? Eight. All right. The Syrian civil war. Okay. Going once. No, no takers. <laughs> All right, there's no Syrian. Okay. Uh, a hard economic landing in China. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Uh, South China Sea tensions. Okay. One and two. Okay. Uh, continuing implosion in Venezuela. One. One, okay. 
and uh, continued political polarization here in the United States. Okay. So we've got, all right, we, we may have a winner here. <laughs> One, <laughs> two, three, four, five, <laughs> right, six. Oh, wait, sorry. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Got you. Eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven. Yep, clearly we've got a winner. So here's, uh, I, I'll tally it up for you. So the number one concern in this room is uh, political polarization here in the United States with 27 votes. Uh, number two, which is it's surprising to me, was instability in Saudi Arabia with 21 votes. Uh, number three, the U.S.-China trade war escalating, got 20 votes. Uh, and uh, uh, so, so your top three are very clear. Uh, then we come in at number four, hard economic landing, China, 10 votes, uh, North Korea, nuclear situation, nine votes at number five, populist nationalism in Europe, uh, eight votes, um, and then no deal Brexit and, and the Syrian civil war and Venezuela implosion are not keeping you up at night. Um, so, uh, Anyone want to, you know, let's, let's talk about, because I think, I think probably the one that, that was surprising to me might be the Saudi instability one. So anyone want to take a crack at, at why they raised their hand for that one as a top three? Please, sir. Right, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, right. That's right, systemic risk, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, and, and I didn't, I also didn't um, give any probability here. So, you know, so it's, but, but we can discuss that probability. Sir. There's also the probability of one of those things being terrorism. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you, yeah, that, that could certainly unleash a whole, a whole hornet's nest of things we don't want to, uh, we don't want to see. So, so that, that was interesting. Any, anybody else on, uh, on, on the Saudi instability one, what, yes? So I see it intertwined with yeah. number 10. Okay. Given the recent um, evangelical cohort that just met with MBS. Right, right. It's really close to home because yeah. a family member of mine was in that meeting. And mm. So when I see, um, yeah, I just see them entwined yeah. as something that is ensconced on the right yeah. in our political polarization right. in this country becoming in any way enmeshed or associated with anything over there. Right, yeah. There's, they're interconnected. Yeah, yeah. That's a, no, it's a good point. It really has become, I mean, you know, MBS, the, whom you, you, you may know, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, um, he's become very closely associated with President Trump and, and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Um, you know, um, the, the President Trump's initial visit to Saudi Arabia Almost the you know entire thing was choreographed uh, between Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman on WhatsApp, right? Um, you know Mohammed bin Salman runs his entire government on WhatsApp. You know uh, he he has WhatsApp groups uh, for all of his ministers, um, and uh, and he you know how many how many of you use WhatsApp by the way? Yeah, we've got a lot of WhatsApp users here. You know, um, uh, and uh, he has a WhatsApp group for you know his ministers, and he's. You know, he, he says to them, I want you to just send me things on WhatsApp. 
you know, I don't want uh, email, I don't want, you know. Uh, so, so, uh, so, but on the political polarization uh, point, um, you know, I think that's, that's uh, you know, that, that's not, it was not surprising that it was up, up high. Is there, anyone want to comment on why you think that is, you know, the, the political risk that, that keeps you up at night the most? Yes. There's just no cohesion and a vision of what this country is. Right. At this point. Yeah. It's just so split. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there's the gridlock's going to continue. Yeah. There's just nothing's going to happen because right. it's all about no. Yeah. Right. And nothing about forward-looking action. What can we do? Right. Productively. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a good point, and and it's a. Uh, I mean, I I come from Washington D.C., so uh, you know we. Uh, I almost take it for for granted that this is this is like you know what where how things are, but um, but you know you there's a lot of folks that are very frustrated about this now. Did 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 I did I I mean I, these are just ten selected political risks that I look at, um, but are there are there ones that maybe you know I should have added to the list? I mean, is is cyber you know attacks you know would that be you know maybe on your top three or top ten list? I mean. Can you think of others that you would, you know, add to your to the list? Yes. Uh, yeah, global climate change is a good one. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, would you would you put it in your top three? Yeah. You would. Yeah. All right. If I okay, let's let's do that now. If if global climate change was on was on this list, uh, how many of you would put it in your top three? Okay. Okay. So that's good to know. Let me see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Yeah, that's, that's, so that would be fourth on our list now. Uh, we did need five. Yeah, you did need five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even yeah. more so given the numbers you shared with us about the rising middle class. Yes, when I yeah. Hear, um, how many, 700 million Chinese lifted out of poverty, but yeah. then I flash to images of people walking around covering, getting the yes. air, and I yeah. think, yeah. How are we? Get, how are we as a globe going to yeah. lift everyone out of? We can't do it the way yeah. the U.S. and China did it, twentieth century model. Right. Because we won't have the planet. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it feeds. It feeds each other. That's right. And as China moves from the the bicycle to the scooter to the car, I mean, think about the all, China already has a larger carbon footprint than the United States. Um, but 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 they also have you know four times more people than we have here. But if China were to um, you know, use as much energy as we do per capita, you know, uh, we'd, we'd all be in a lot of trouble, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Yes, sir. The South China Sea is a problem yeah. because when you have, for us, China's new on the block in terms of being an economic and a rising military power. Right. But for them, psychologically, this is just a cycle in 500 years. Yeah. So they're, yeah. Just, they're just reasserting themselves to them. Right, right. And if they have a hard fall, then what do you do when you have a hard fall after promoting so many expectations for people, you have right. to blame it on somebody. Right. So you right. Can use your military newness yeah. because you're the new person who's kind of gone through this new training regime and you yeah. want to test it. Right. And who right. do you test it against? Yeah. 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 No. That, no. It's, it's, yeah. You test it against us. Right. Right. Yeah. And and look, I mean, the uh, I think uh, and and we'll probably uh, I guess my last point to make here is that uh, you know this China-U.S. trade dispute is going to go on. I mean, this is not something that. I, I don't get a sense that the Trump administration is going to, um, uh, uh, you know, end this very qu soon, or, uh, uh, or or quietly. I mean, I think the thing that to, to look for 
is um, as long as you know Robert Lighthizer, the the trade representative, um, continues to have President Trump's ear on this issue, um, you know, then then we're we're likely going to continue to see this this play out the way it's being played out. Um, if if you know. Mnuchin, uh, the Treasury Secretary, or Kudlow uh, on the National Economic Council had their way, we wouldn't have gone this far. Uh, but this is something that I think we're going to be living with for the next uh, uh, year or so. Um, and, and to the Dean's point, I mean, it has serious implications. Uh, so I thank you very much uh, for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy, I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org podcast for more information.